I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers and just plain cool people about music. Our guest today is actor, producer, writer and director Zach Braff. You probably know Zach from his work on the television series Scrubs, which ran for nine seasons that covered the first decade of the 2000s and his 2004 movie Garden State, which he wrote, co-starred in and directed. The film, which was based on Zach's real-life experiences, received positive reviews and won a Grammy for Best Compilation Soundtrack Album for a Motion Picture, Television or Other Visual Media. The soundtrack also helped elevate the careers of many of the artists featured, most notably The Shins. Since then, Zach has been beyond busy with all sorts of cool projects. He has executive produced documentaries, including The Internet's Own Boy, The Story of Aaron Sforts, He's directed several music videos, done voice work for movies and video games, most notably the titular character in the film Chicken Little and its spin-off video games. He's worked in theatre both as an actor and writer, and as we record this conversation in late January 2023, Zach is readying the release of his new film, A Good Person, starring Morgan Freeman and Florence Pugh, which he wrote, directed, and produced. Zach, great to meet you and to see you in person. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm such a fan of yours, and it's, it's so surreal to hear your voice coming out of your actual head, because <laughs> I've listened to you for so many years over the radio. This is only the second episode that we've actually recorded in person, so my thanks to Jeff Greenberg and everyone here at the Village Studios in Los Angeles for making it happen and actually giving us a studio space in the middle of them setting up for a massive Grammy party yeah. tomorrow. It's like a construction site. Yes, it's very cool. So thanks, guys. You know, as I was putting together the intro, there was so much that I had to leave out, like your DGA award for directing Ted Lasso. <laughs> You're a busy, busy guy. And before we get to the music questions, maybe I could ask you to spin back a little bit to growing up in uh, South Orange in New Jersey. I read that you said it was your life dream from an early age to become a filmmaker, what kind of a kid were you? What were you into? Well, um, you know, my father got um, the kids in my family a Super 8 camera, and my oldest brother was obsessed with James Bond, um, and he, Adam, started recreating uh, James Bond films with the Super 8 camera in the house. Nice. And I was very young. I was 10 years younger than him, and he was the director, and he was coming up with interesting ways to do um, stunts and camera tricks. And he was my hero. I, I, I wanted to be like him so much and um, to be included in the films because he was mostly doing it with his buddies. Um, I, it was the first time he really ever played with me because, um, again, he was 10 years older. And I remember there was one point where he, he literally said, uh, no, this, this part's a closed set. You can't come in here. Uh, we're, we're... And I was like, I don't want to be kicked out of the closed set. And so it was a, from a very early age that I associated making movies with fun. My father loved films um, um, and theater. And so I just got very intrigued by it. I had zero interest in sports. And so while the other kids were starting to go in, into Little League and, and, and form communities that were built around sports, as so many children do, I, I felt a little disillusioned by that because I had just had no interest. But what, what I gravitated towards was uh, the theater. And my father was involved in the community theater. I, I loved that. I loved the technical aspects. of. I, I thought the tech crew of the, of the community theater were the coolest people I'd ever seen. And I, I, I just, I sort of started to begin to find my, my people in, in, in the theater world and um, with this Super 8 camera. Can you tell us about your time at Stage Door Manor and yeah. then 
going on to Northwestern University. How did your education prepare you for your career and the ultimate move to Los Angeles? Well, a lot. I mean, first of all, Stage Door was the first time I found my people. It was like, you know, Stage Door is a theater camp for kids uh, up in the Catskills. And it's it's the most serious of them in, in, in a sense that for kids that really might early on know they want to do this, it's a, it's a, it's a real training retreat. I mean, it isn't, there's not a lot of, as my father said, I guess you don't need to bring a mitt. I mean, there wasn't a lot of um, activities that weren't theater training. Right. But I found my people. I was like, oh my God, where where are these people? This is a place. <laughs> Everyone's into theater. And also, you know, a lot of the boys and, and girls had already, at that point, already knew that they were gay. Uh, uh, so for a, a young straight kid, it was like, I was like Fonzie, you know, I was, <laughs> I'd found... <laughs> I, I was I was great at the thing that was the cool thing to be great at, and um, so I found it was right at the time where you know I had my first kiss there, and it was just heaven. I didn't want it to ever leave. I didn't want it, I would sob when I had to leave, and um, and while there I got scouted by a you know the, some of the agents would come up for kid agents would come up from Manhattan and and scout kids, and I started going on auditions. I got my I got a pilot at fourteen years old that didn't go. Hmm. Um, uh, and lots of little things. And then at 18, I got cast in, in Woody Allen's film, uh, Manhattan Murder Mystery. Um, and it was a very small part, but it was so pivotal because it was, you know, I had been raised on, on Woody Allen and, and Annie Hall. And that was, Annie Hall was my father's favorite movie. And there I was playing uh, Diane Keaton and Woody Allen's son. And uh, Angelica Houston was in the scene. And I was 18 and it was such a, if you look at the game, of, if you think of the game of shoots and ladders, it was such a, a ladder, a giant one, that there was the thought like, well, I got a Northwestern film program. Do I still go or do I stay and ride this momentum? Mm. And I chose to go to film school at Northwestern because that's really what I wanted to do. I, I, I love acting and I and I wanted to act, but my real passion was was learning to make movies. When did you start writing? My first memory of writing something was in fifth grade uh, we had an, uh, you know, I was a bit of a class clown. That's how I made friends. I was, I would try and be funny and, and make people laugh. But in fifth grade, there was an assignment to write a, a short story and then re read it in front of the class. And I chose to weave in other kids in the class as the protagonists in the story in a funny way. And I remember getting up in front of the class and reading it and and they, everyone was belly laughing from my story. And in fact, I remember, I remember clocking that the teacher was belly laughing. <laughs> and I, it was such a high. This is working. Yeah. It was such a high. It was yeah. a high like the other kids were having from hitting the home run on the field that I wasn't having. Um, and I was an anxious kid. And, and, I, and, I, and I, all of a sudden, there was this moment where I said, I want, is this a thing? Like, can I do this? Can I write funny things that make people laugh? And... Um, so I wrote, and then and it, my, it was very hard to get in Northwestern. You had to write three um, big essays, and I remember those being um, going well. I remember I didn't necessarily have the best SAT scores, but I, I wrote essays that I think helped me get in. And, um, and in terms of screenwriting and stuff, I started writing short films while at Northwestern, and um, I didn't really take on the first original um, screenplay, full screenplay, until Garden State. That was the first screenplay I ever wrote. Wow, not a not a bad way to start. Yeah, well, I never imagined anyone would go. I mean, I I, th I thought it would be my parents and like you know, the chorus from the from Temple. I didn't think uh, I had no idea that it would have the reaction that 
You know, you, you mentioned being an anxious kid and as I was prepping for this this conversation, and we'll get to the music in a minute, mm. but uh, I know that you were diagnosed with OCD as a, as a young kid. Mm. And, and I have an interest in this because I have a, a son who is also uh, OCD and is going through some, some really rough stuff. How did that impact your ability to, to interact with your surroundings apart from the stuff that you were doing with acting, apart from what ended up being your career? You know, when you're young, you don't know, you just don't know that you're different in any way. I thought everyone was that anxious. Mm. I thought everyone, you know, it's like your adrenaline's always always riding high. Think of it like people who have acid reflux and their, their acid always feels like it's in their neck. Mm. Um, it's like your adrenaline is always riding high. And I just assumed as a child, actually probably into my 20s that that's just how everybody was mm. and the ocd part um manifested you know some people have it way worse than than i had it but my the way that i had it as a child would be like you'd, you'd have a thought as a child like there'd be a teddy bear on the bed and you'd go even even your logical part of your brain would go uh if i don't i mean my, my i would say to myself if i don't kiss that teddy bear six times before i leave the room something bad could happen in my family mm. And then the logical part of my brain would go, that's ridiculous, but just to be safe, mm -hmm. I'm going to do it. And then you go do it because it's just, just to be safe. Mm -hmm. And I still deal with some of this today. And I, I would do the tr traditional tapping stuff where it's like, I, I have to hit this door, this door handle four times, or yeah. it was always like, or something bad will happen. There'll be a bad, something bad will happen to the family or me. And in a lot of ways, I've overcome a lot of it, although I still battle anxiety a a again at a level that, that you'd think, oh, isn't everyone this anxious? And then you learn, actually not. I mean, people people battle it at different um, levels. And there are people that don't battle it at the, at the, at the starting point that I do. But this, I called myself out, I think it was two days ago. I had a candle. I was in my office and I was writing something and I had a little candle going um, just to set the mood for- A little, little ambiance, yeah. A little ambiance for writing, which is something I do. And I blew it out. I know that I blew it out. And I left the office and closed the door and my brain went, check, check the candle. I'm not sure it was out. Now, I've been dealing with this for, for, I'm 47 years old. I know this is OCD. The candle was clearly blown out. I just watched it blow out. Yeah. And sometimes I, you acquiesce and sometimes you don't. But my brain went, you're going to obsess about that candle being out if you don't go double check it. And I opened the door and went and double checked it. Right. Um, so it's still something I, I, I deal with um, in lots of ways. But I've gotten, with help and therapy and, uh, and coaching, I've gotten it under control. Let me ask you about when you first moved to, to Los Angeles. What were those early years like? Well, I moved out here for a girl, uh, which, which never goes well. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> I've moved countries for a girl. <laughs> <laughs> the story always starts with moving out for a girl. Um, I was in love with this young woman I met at uh, Sundance and... Um, I follow, and, and, but also I realized I had to come out here. I was auditioning from New York and back in, in the, the late nineties, which is when we're talking about, um, you know, you really, what, what would happen is you'd, you'd, you'd put yourself, you wouldn't put yourself on tape. You'd go in and audition to, to a video camera and then mm -hmm. they would FedEx the VHS cassette to, yeah. to LA. Yeah. And if it even got watched, it was certainly was not being treated or looked at in the same way that someone could come into a room and be charming and make you laugh and bond with you and connect sure. with you. Like we're sitting right here. It's, you can't compete with a, VH, a, a grainy VHS tape. And I was getting no traction at all. So I really realized that if I was going to make a go of this, I had to come out to LA. And I, I probably used the, the woman, the young woman as, a, as an excuse. 
But I came out, I was living uh, with her and she had roommates and that was ridiculous. They were like, why, you know, you're not living with us. What are you doing? So I got an apartment. So excuse me, I got a small, I rented a small house with in Laurel Canyon with um, uh, my friend. And I just, just discovered that I loved Laurel Canyon. I thought, oh, this is the most magical place. And then I learned the history of the music scene there and mm-hmm. um, kind of fell in love with it there. Um, and, but I, was, I had no money. I didn't have a dollar to my name. My parents had loaned me $5,000 to uh, buy a car because you need a car in LA, yeah. uh, especially then before Uber. I suppose people could choose to go the Uber route. But I got a Nissan 240SX used uh, for five thousand dollars, and um, beautiful car. Loved yeah. it. But then I, then I, then I had officially had zero money. So I got a job waiting tables at a very fancy uh, restaurant that's closed now. But it was uh, it was called uh, Le Colonial, and it was a French Vietnamese restaurant at the corner of Robertson and Beverly. It's the Leica store now, which is just perfect because I love cameras and Leicas. Mm. <laughs> But anyway, so I was waiting tables and wearing a tunic, and um, and and that's where that Garden State uh, opening came from. Uh, the character is working at a, a French Vietnamese restaurant, and he's being berated for not having uh, bread. Uh, and um, I sort of was writing what I knew, and I worked there, and 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 began to make survivable money as a waiter. Um, and it was there from there that I. Uh, was auditioning and getting absolutely no traction until I, I, I really was considering going back to New York and, and questioning everything. And my agent said, oh, just go through one more pilot season. And that's when I got Scrubs. How did being in a hit network TV show change your world? Well, it's complete. I mean, it, it talk about a, it was a Cinderella story. I mean, I, I went from waiting tables and and just living hand to mouth really to um being the star of a of a very popular network and by the way this is back when network people actually watched network tv in meaningful ways mm. i think there were 11 million people watching scrubs well, in the beginning before streaming and all the other sort oh, of yeah. distractions I mean, the numbers are so Different, you know. I, I recently heard that you know the finale of Mash was watched by seventy million people, and then when we think of of of, of hits like Sopranos in that era, and, and that which were bona fide hits, three million people were watching them. But a network show that was HBO, a network show like Scrubs, at its at its height, was getting like eleven million viewers, which is just not something that happens anymore um, because of uh, of of streaming and all that. So it was hugely popular and it was life-changing um, and, and quite an adjustment to living in the public eye and and, um, and having a job. But it was the greatest thing in the world. I, 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 it, was the, it was as though the show had been written for me because Bill Lawrence, the creator, and I had such the same sense of humor. I wasn't getting any traction on these shows, a lot of them, because I didn't find it genuinely funny. I, I, I wasn't good at faking it. You weren't connecting to the I material. I wasn't connecting yeah. to it. And there are actors out there who could sell the shit out of anything. Um, and, and, and kudos to them. They could turn a joke that's just not funny and, and sell it. And I wasn't that great at that. I, and so uh, Bill and I just uh, uh, really connected. And he became a mentor to me and a big brother to me. And, and then it just started feeding itself because Donald Faison and I genuinely became best friends. 
And, and, and then he'd be like, what did you guys do this weekend? And we'd tell him some insane story. And then a week later, it would be in the show. The <laughs> <laughs> you guys actually have a podcast as well, right? Right at the beginning of the pandemic, we started a Scrubs rewatch podcast. Right. Um, two, two women from the office sh- show had done this, and it, it was they were, they were sort of the, the breakthrough ones to do this. And people presented, Donald and I, with it. And we were like, so you're telling us that we, we just hang out for an hour and a half a week and joke about an episode of Scrubs? Right. Yeah, we're in. And then the <laughs> pandemic started, and we so we had to do it over Zoom, which is how we continue, we still do it. We, we have um, uh, good mics and good recording equipment, so it sounds better than just being over Zoom. Mm. Um, but yeah, every Tuesday morning, we, it's called Fake Doctors, Real Friends. Um, uh, and we release an episode, uh, you can get it wherever you get podcasts. And we just, we really go on very long tangents and joke around, but the structure of it is that we're going to loosely talk about an episode of the show and we're going in order and we're having so much fun. We're going too fast. We're, we're like, we're about to finish season seven and there's only nine seasons of the show. So we don't know what the heck we're going to do after. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the music in Garden State, just very quickly. Yeah, sure. We've got our music questions coming up, but I would imagine that the success of Scrubs gives you a little currency, right? It gives you a little currency to do stuff that perhaps you wouldn't have been able to do before, like write and direct and star in, in your own movie. And yeah. the, the music played such a, a, a big part of the, the movie's success. How did you pick the music? Well, um, it was definitely a, a team effort. I mean, I was listening to uh, Morning Becomes Eclectic. I was um, going to um, shows at Largo. I was, um, my friends, um, particularly Carrie uh, Brothers and Joshua Radin and um, and others were so into the LA music scene and were feeding me music. Carrie was the very first person to ever play me uh, the Coldplay album. Um, what was it called, the first album? Why am I blanking on that? Parachutes. Thank you, Parachutes. We actually played it first on Morning Becomes a Black. I'm sure you did. Well, I remember sitting on Carrie's bed. <laughs> I can't get anywhere near Chris Martin anymore, but if you can help me with that, I'd appreciate it. Well, I'll, I'll, pu- <laughs> I'll put a call in. Um, he, I remember I, had a, I, I hung out with Chris Martin. This is a funny story. I've never, I don't think I've ever told this story, but so Carrie played me Parachutes. I was sitting on his bed. And we're hanging out at his house. And he's like, you got to hear this band. He probably heard it from you. And we were just blown away. And then Chris came to town. And because uh, Carrie had a friend of a friend, he wasn't famous yet. And we took him around. Uh, we went. He, we, I remember being at Mel's Diner, having milkshakes with him. And then we went to some bar. And he had never really seen celebrities before. And he saw, this is so funny because of the success of that um, uh, Cobra Kai show. But I forgot the, I don't know the actor's name, I'm sorry, but who's, who played the bad guy in Karate Kid, he was in the bar. And Chris was like, is that the bad guy from Karate Kid? And we looked over and we squinted. We're like, I think it is. Do you think I could meet him? And Carrie and I knew like, this guy is, this guy, Chris Martin, is going to be a major rock star. Like he doesn't know, he doesn't know yet who he is uh, in terms of the level of fame he's going to have. I'm, I'm sure that the gentleman from, uh, from Karate Kid would love to, we would would love to meet a fan. So it was just a funny memory of of Chris being shy around meeting a celebrity, and now he's become uh, you know one of the biggest pop rock stars in the world. Yeah, I think anybody who was around him before that happened would be. It's ironic that the guy was so sort of shy. I guess that's 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 the word. You know, socially sort of you know not really able to sort of you know 
connect with people. And now people. I go see him at, uh, at, at stadiums. Um, but anyway, so that so that's where the music came from. You know, uh, it, it was kind of just a mixtape. It was like, it was a mixtape of like songs we were all listening to. Colin Hay was really, really impactful to me. I saw him at Largo. Uh, the the ex-girlfriend uh, that I moved out brought me to Largo and I saw Colin Hay and I just was transfixed. Colin um, Hay from Men at Work. Colin Hay from Men at Work, yeah. who, um, if you don't know, um, plays uh, solo those songs, stripped down, and also his his own stuff. And I, this was also the time of uh, David Gray. Uh, all you know that era of that album. Uh, what was it? White Ladders. Yeah. Um, White Ladder. Uh, that that this was that was this was that era, and and so all of that music was what I was listening to and what my friends and I were listening to and, and, and it, we worked it into the Garden State soundtrack. We can talk about Carrie a little bit here as well because I mentioned in the intro that you're readying the release of your new movie, A Good Person. Can you tell us a little bit about the story and the writing and, and the shooting of it? And are you someone who writes characters with actors in mind? Um, not always. I wrote this one particularly in mind because um, I was dating Florence Pugh and she is just a phenomenon. Uh, I'm just... I, I was and am so in awe of her talent. I was just blown away by, she's just a savant. She has never had an hour of training in her life and it's just natural ability. And, and I was just flabbergasted by her brilliance and I wanted to write something for her. Um, at the same time, I had also over the last four years experienced a lot of loss and, and grief. I lost my sister, um, I lost my father, I lost my manager. And also, uh, and then ultimately, my my best friend who was staying in my guest house at the time died of COVID. That was kind of the most public one because his name is Nick Cordero. He was a beloved Broadway star. Yeah. And he and his wife and a child had come out to L.A. to find a house and begin to, he wanted to segue from being just a Broadway actor to more of a film and TV actor. And um, as I had uh, in, in 2000, and he got COVID and died. Yeah, I remember. So that was tragic. And uh, and I watched his uh, widow, who's one of my best friends, try to and then successfully uh, stand back up again after this tragedy. And so I wanted to write, this was all during the pandemic, and I wanted to write about uh, grief and standing up again from grief, um, but also not have it be this maudlin, melancholic film. How do you tell a story that's digestible, that is entertaining, but talks about something that we all have an experience with? And so that was kind of the impetus for for writing a good person. I didn't know who the I I, I was writing it for a, a a woman in her twenties, Florence, obviously, and then um, some sort of older legend that I had in my mind. I didn't know who that would be, and then I had the courage to send it to Morgan Freeman because we had made another film together, and um, when he said yes, it was it was so exciting because. I didn't know what the race of the person would be. And when it was an African-American man, it, it actually ended up making the story more interesting because it because it's about two families. It then became about an African-American and a white relationship that falls apart and, uh, and the very odd friendship between um, Morgan Freeman's character and Florence Pugh's character. So um, that's that was sort of the, how, it, how it came about. And um, we shot it over a very short time. Um, uh, 26 days or so in, in North Jersey, in the, in, in the towns where I grew up. Carrie Brothers, who you mentioned is a, a friend of yours, um, 
hit me up about a month ago. I mean, this is why we're sitting here today. I know. I, we have to thank Carrie. Yeah, because because I had you got to play the song. I had <laughs> I, I, I we premiered it on the radio show okay, a couple great. of weeks ago. So he hit me up and. Uh, I know him from, you know, 20 years ago, obviously. Yeah, he's when, a huge fan of yours. And... When there was a great singer-songwriter scene going on in the hotel cafe that we supported quite extensively on the uh, on the old radio show. And he said, so uh, it's been a while, and um, hey, I'm about to make my acting debut in, in, a, in a film with, with Zach, and I've written the song for, for the movie, and he sent it to me, and he's like, would you premiere it? You're my, my favorite DJ and you know, I've listened to you for years. And I was like, yeah, of course. You know, and then I listened to it and I was like, yes, of course, because it's <laughs> yeah. so good. It's a very Nick Harcourt-esque song. And I, and I said to him, I was like, but you got to do me a favor. I said, you got to hit up Zach and see if he would do the podcast. So here we are. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the song and uh, uh, how it plays in the movie. It's importance to, to the It's to the very film. important in the film. And it's funny, Carrie, we laughed because one one episode of Scrubs, Carrie played uh, himself in a in a bar. It was before he broke as a, as, as a, as a known performer. And uh, he said, I think I'm the only person that exists as himself in both the Zach Braff movie universe and the Scrubs universe. And I thought about it and I was like, yes, that is accurate. There's a scene where two of the characters are going to uh, the city to see a show, uh, going into Manhattan to see a, a, a rock show. And I needed to obviously have that band. And I realized that that song, whatever it was, was going to be prominent. Um, and I spoke to Kerry about it. And he had been kind of messing with a song. And he said, I'm working on something. Uh, I want to play it for you. And um, I didn't want to tell him right away. I loved the song, but I didn't want to cast him right away because I was like, oh, no, let me think about it for a second. First of all, would he do this? Well, yeah, he would do this. It's kind of a good uh, opportunity for him. The song is so perfect. And then finally I just asked him and he said, yeah, he would do it. And he would not only, I needed him to not only be in the movie, you know, it's the show they go to see, but then the song would, would feature prominently. And I just love the song. Um, it's very moving to me. And... I love Carrie, and we both love Coldplay a lot, and 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 uh, to me, it's reminiscent of 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 the of of early Coldplay. We've worked our way through to um, the music questions that I ask everybody yeah. every uh, every episode. So let's jump into it. What is your first musical memory? My first musical memory is that my my father got me a record player. And he didn't know, I was so young, he didn't know, well, what's your music taste? Who knows what a child's music taste is? But he liked Sheena Easton. Mm. This was the era of my baby takes the moan, whatever that album is. Nine to five. And he, yeah. um, so that was my first album. He yeah. bought me that because that was his taste. Right. <laughs> and so it's all the only album I had. And, uh, and I, my brothers all had their music, you know, they were older than me and, and they would crank their music in their rooms, which was, which was like ACDC and, <laughs> and other, and, and other things that were, that weren't necessarily my young taste, but I was, but I would try and compete. So each morning I would crank Sheena Easton. <laughs> you know, she, she got a huge career off of, um, being, uh, being associated with Prince, I, I think. And, but before that, I don't know if you know this, um, she won a talent show. In, in the UK. That's how I first heard I didn't her. know that. Yes. I know. I knew because For Your Eyes Only was probably my first Bond movie right. in the theater. Yeah. Which was definitely life-changing, seeing um, a Bond movie in the theater and, and she sang the For Your Eyes Only theme song. What was the first music you bought with your own money? That's a great question. I don't really remember. Uh, probably, uh, probably like 
I would probably say Cat Stevens. Um, I remember, I remember Cat Stevens and James Taylor and Paul Simon um, were was areas where I overlapped with my parents, you know. And so you're you're getting your early music taste from from them, right? So I think there were plenty of things they were playing that weren't for me, but um, I think I really latched on to Cat Stevens and Paul Simon and and James Taylor and Billy Joel. Sorry, Billy Joel was huge. So very much, um, well, Billy Joel a little more produced, but the other guys very much singer-songwriters, yeah. acoustic-based. And and really melodic, I, you know, because I grew up on musicals and stuff because um, of my father's love of theater. So I really was searching for, for I really fell for melody and singer-songwriter um, hooky melodies. I'm a little bit older than you, but I remember as a kid having a, a writing to Island Records for posters. I wanted posters for my bedroom wall. I remember them sending me artists I'd never heard of, including Cat Stevens, mm. and uh, listening to him, obviously, and then falling in love with his music. And then about 15 years ago, um, I got the opportunity to host what was his first U.S. performance in 20 years. Because you remember he couldn't get in the country. He had some some issues. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, getting to meet this guy all these years later. We should later, have him on this show. Oh, I would love to get him again. He's oh. just such a lovely man. Anyway, well, yeah. Does he play the, does he, I know he's Yusuf Islam now, does he play the all the all the old songs? I do believe he does. Yeah, I think he was touring a couple of years ago, right before. Oh, the, I'd love um, to see that. Before, before COVID, he was out with a band and doing the Cat Stevens songs. Um, what was the first concert you went to without adult supervision? This is a really uh, embarrassing story, but I went to see Rush at Madison Square Garden. I loved Rush as a kid, but I got, I was a teenager and we got so drunk outside Madison Square Garden, drinking 40 ounces of beer that someone sold us. <laughs> and I, I remember being in the garden, so like, like swerving and like, a teenager who drank too much, and I made the, the weirdest decision of I've. I, I every time I think about it, I can't believe I did this. There was this, obviously before phones and being able to contact anyone. I just stood up and went home. I got I, I stood up, left my friends, got on New Jersey Transit, and went home. And they were like, "Where?" They had no idea how to contact me or where I'd gone. If I'd been kidnapped, what happened to me? Um. But I was so intoxicated that I knew I had to leave. I heard like three Rush songs. And then I stood up gotta and get walked out of to here. the train. I was like, I got to get the heck out of here. And I went home. It's <laughs> great. It's really story. embarrassing. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing. But I loved this, Rush. Yeah. And I loved, I always wanted to, in my next life, I want to be a drummer. And uh, Neil Peart was a, was a hero of mine. Amazing drama. Um, what do you listen to when you want to dance? Um, oh, probably just like... Um, Jackson Five. I mean, like you know, Motown. I, I mean, when I want to, yeah, I, I think of like Motown and like, uh, and 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 Michael Jackson. I'll do it. What do you listen to if you're feeling sad? Heartbreak songs. Um, Fiona Apple. That album, uh, Win the Pawn, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, the very long title one. Um, that was really. Uh, that hit me at a, at a moment where I where I really needed to hear sad songs. That's that's the most recent one, right? Came out about three no, or four years ago. No, no, no. There was that's 
there oh, was that's fetch the bolt cutters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. When was when? Oh, was you that? have like a you're like a IMDb uh, for music. Yeah, except I completely got it wrong. But, uh, yeah. No, uh, no. This was this was this would have been uh, early early aughts. Got it. Um, this is a weird question, but we added it to the to the questionnaire a couple of episodes ago. If you could only hear one song for the rest of your life, <laughs> what would it be? No, that's so hard. I um, it would be probably something by Cat Stevens, one of his beautiful songs, because they're just so so zen and peaceful. And maybe okay, I'll pick one just to be fun. Uh, Wind by Cat Stevens. It's interesting. Sometimes I ask that question, people are like, "Oh yeah, straight away," and then other people are like, "What do you mean just?" Well, one I'm just song? thinking like, I, you know, fair. I could pick a song that would be get that would eventually like if you pick Angry Young Man, you're eventually going to be hitting your head against the wall. Right. I got to pick something that's soothing so I can listen to it for over the rest and over of time. Yeah. <laughs> do you have a, a a favorite music video, and if so, why? Well, I do because it, I directed it, and I'm biased towards it. But it was a it was a I directed a handful of music videos and. There was one by Gavin DeGraw uh, called Chariot um, that I'm really proud of. And um, it was a very hard shoot because I had planned for such an elaborate music video. It was going to be a big one that didn't cut with 100 extras and moving set pieces. And and your listeners can find it on YouTube. It's 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 under Gavin DeGraw Chariot music video, obviously. But um, by, we didn't have, they didn't have the budget for a, for a full rehearsal day, which is something you would have needed to accomplish this well. If you're going to have 100 extras and moving set pieces, um, you need to rehearse for a day. And they didn't have that money. So by 6 p.m. that day of the one shoot day, we hadn't shot anything. So I was on the verge of a panic attack and I had to rethink the whole thing. And so when you watch the music video, it's sort of a wonder in pieces and we and we, we we use the device of cutting to Gavin's face a close up of him singing as a way to bridge the edits um but i thought it was really cool and i'm really proud i thought it was a cool video and um and i had i had such a crush on Jamie King uh the model and uh and the model actress and she's she's the leading lady in it say no more <laughs> <laughs> do you do you have a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with Alice? Yeah, I really do. I really think, uh, and she's on the uh, A Good Person soundtrack. Her name's Lizzie McAlpine. Mm. Has she hit your radar yet? Yeah, she has. She's incredible. Yeah. And she's a savant. She's like, I think she went to the Berkeley uh, Academy of Music. She's 21 years old. I mean, that's, we're talking about a woman, a young woman who's writing poetry and writing music at such an advanced level. Um, she reminds me of Fiona Apple. Um, she reminds me of uh, Sarah Bareilles, uh, Taylor Swift. She's she's a really really b- incredible songwriter, and her poetry is just next level. So uh, if I could buy stock in in one young artist, it would be uh, Lizzie McAlpine. You say she has a track on the uh, yes. On um, the to the, her well. song "To the Mountains" is on the uh, is is in our movie. Is there a lot of music in in this movie? Yes, we're releasing a really. Uh, uh, wonderful soundtrack and we're releasing it on vinyl which is cool the other thing i should mention is that um in the film florence Pugh's character is an amateur singer songwriter herself not professional but just as her hobby and florence wrote two the two original songs herself in character as the as the woman allison um so those are not only in the film um sung by her but also on the soundtrack do you have a band or an artist that you love, but you feel perhaps they never quite got 
the big break they deserve. Remy Zero. Do you remember Remy Zero? Yeah. I, you must have played them. We did, yeah. A band out of Birmingham, Alabama. I love this band. They're on. I've, <clears throat> they're on a lot of things. I've. Uh, I put them. I placed them a bunch of times. Yeah. Um. I love that band, and um, and they 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 they're not together for whatever their reasons are. But I. That's a band that I always. It was one. It was my favorite band, and um, Villa Elaine was yeah. the album that I was. Again, we're, we're talking. Uh, around 2000 that's that was my favorite album when i when i first moved to la which was in 1998 they just released that album and we we had them on the uh, i think when i i think the I, the, I think one of the best shows i've ever seen in my life was was remy zero at the viper room like right in their prime and yeah. i was like this is this oh my god i can't wait for a whole lifetime of this music and then they broke up every now and then as you know i, I still do a radio show here in, in la on a, a, a smaller station these days but uh, every now and then i pull save me that song love that song um and uh and i just get chills and i love it yeah. and another one that no one um that, that stopped making music that i loved is a band called jump little children do you remember them i do yeah um They've also stopped, um, and I thought that they—that was another band I, I I loved that that didn't really ever get um, huge traction. We got two questions left, and and I'm sad because this is. I know so, I could talk to you all day. So, Nick so much. <laughs> Thanks, Zach. Um, do you have a musical guilty pleasure? Now, let me just sort of preface this. I ask this sometimes, and people go, "No, I love everything. Why would I feel guilty about?" It? Um, so the second part of that question or the reframing of that question mm. is, is there an artist that you love that people would be surprised to know? No, I'll love? answer your first way, which is that I, I, I love girl pop, um, not necessarily current day, although I love like, for example, Taylor Swift's album, I love, um, you know, whether it be, um, Michelle Branch back in the day or, um. There was another song. There was another, um, you know, uh, you know, even even that song Ashley Simpson sang on SNL, but in that in that horrible story where oh they got the track wrong. Yeah, I, you know, pieces of me, like that kind of like um, '90s and aughts uh, power girl pop uh, anthem. Uh, I loved, I love, and do love, and and crank in my car. So I'm not, I'm not embarrassed about. It. And our final question is, how are you feeling right now? Well, I'm smiling because I'm with you. Um, uh, I'm, I'm very happy. I feel very, very lucky. I feel very lucky to, to get to do what I do. I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, globally, ma in the macro sense, I'm um, nervous to, and always nervous to release a film. And um, it's daunting to release a film theatrically these days because you just don't know if people are going to go. So... I hope people go. Um, uh, it's coming out March 24th in theaters, which, which in this day and age for a, a movie that's aimed at adults that's not action is, is rare. So um, I'm excited, but also anxious, as I always am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck with the film. Thank uh, you. I can't wait to see it. I already know the uh, uh, I already know one of the songs that's in it, yeah. which is the Carrie Brothers song. What's it called again? Uh, Star Stardust. Right. And I'm going to get you, and you will also know uh, the Lizzie McAlpine song now, and I'm going to get you uh, a vinyl uh, the second they're off the printer. Wow, thank you. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And Zach, thank you so much for taking your time, and not just speaking to me, but 
probably taking two or three hours of your day to come out here to uh, to the village in you West LA. You did make me come to Culver City, but I would only do that for certain people, and Nick Harcourt, you're one of them. Thanks, man. <laughs> that was great. I could talk to you for hours. The Sound of Success is hosted and produced by myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple, sparknetwork.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. 